space, final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life, a new civilization, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Greetings, salutations, and welcome to Retrek. I'm Captain Jim. Joining me, of course, is Admiral Elliot. And hosting us once again for this episode is Dr. Squee. And it is Black History Month in America. Like I just discovered today that it's different months in different parts of the world, which, fair enough. Um, So we're tackling an episode that we've wanted to cover for a while. And we thought there's no more sort of apropos time, really. We're looking at the classic DS9 six-season episode, Far Beyond the Stars, which is, yeah, I mean, we're going to have lots and lots to say about it, but first, there has been some Trek news this week. Oh, really? I've got a lot of fan of that. And by the way, just just not, nothing, not saying anything in America, but you did give Black History Month the shortest month. We didn't do that, but that's your choice. That's fine. <laughs> and I also, well... While Squee finds the banner, I just want to say for anyone who is watching on the live stream, I am here live and I am not a cat, so let's just carry on. <laughs> um, so, I'm actually a cat disguised as Dr. Squee right now, but that's beside the point. So, uh, the, yeah, the Trek news. So, first of all, apparently Strange New Worlds is going to start production over the next week or so. So, that's pretty good news. Um, a lot of, I'd put this under rumours more than news, really, but it's looking like Discovery, all the all the signs seem to be saying we will get it before the end of this year, season four. So that's good news. We thought maybe it wouldn't be till next week, but next year, rather. The most earth-shattering hey, news, though, has just broken, and that is more casting for Star Trek Prodigy. So obviously... Originally, we've been told Kate Mulgrew's coming back as Janeway, which we're very excited about. However, the outrageous O'Connor from TNG, that awful TNG Season 2 episode, will be returning. Yeah, of, when you sort of think <laughs> of... Was the the guy who plays O'Connor, probably. Of the week, he's not the one that springs to the top of your list, is he? <laughs> he's not, no. Um... Yeah, and I think I mean, the... finally, finally, those outrageous O'Connor fans will be serviced at last. They're getting their way. Yeah. All those hordes of people which have been petitioning Paramount since that episode aired. Finally, their prayers are answered. They've also, with Prodigy, they've started recording season two already, haven't they? Have they? I didn't know that. Yeah, they, they already started recording. Uh, obviously, it's just soundtrack, but that's already. Uh, in production. Oh, well, that's good to know. I mean, I have noticed, like, I don't follow as many kids' shows as I used to do, like, you know, because we're not in the 80s heyday, let's be honest. But things like um, that She-Ra series that Netflix did, they did a lot of um, the new Transformers, like, they've done a lot of, like, short seasons, but a couple of them a year rather than, you know, one season a year and then a break. So maybe that's what they're going to be going with, with... Well, Prodigy, well, who knows? Well, all of the TV companies are saying, like, any of the animation shows, they can still get out pretty much like normal because it's voice recording. Yeah, So, yeah. like we saw with, like, when they did Lower Decks, they can record at home. They don't need to go into a studio. Yeah. 
the artists can work at home. They don't need to go into the studio. So they can do it pretty much all at the same I'm same also speed as normal. I'm also wondering if there's another return because um if you follow Will Wheaton on any of his social media platforms, he often puts up uh, pictures of him at work, you know, and he'll just put a, a thing saying working and he's wearing his mask because he's very pro-mask, you know, because he's a, grew up to be a very sensible guy, Will Wheaton. But um, he's put a couple up lately where he hasn't said what it is and usually he gives a bit of a hint as to what it is. But he's had a couple recently where he's been wearing a Star Trek T-shirt and he's put a thing up saying, I'm working, and you think, mm, maybe. Anyhow. See, I, th- I, think, I think maybe this was all going into it. They were there at Paramount. They're going, it's like, right, okay, we've got Janeway. This kind of, the show's looking quite exciting. Yeah, possibly Will Wheaton. We don't know that. But, like, you know, let's just say he's in it. They're, they're there. They're scratching their chins like, should we go ahead with season two? It's very cheap to produce, as kind of Elliot's um, said, or not easy to produce in COVID times. And then someone said, well, we've got the outrageous O'Connor. They go, season two, here you go. Make yeah, more. that's it. Like, that's what's wrong with it. That's clearly what's wrong with it. Yeah, I mean, who else could they bring back that would be a client? You know what? Bring um, back bring back the code well, of honour, people. we're talking about um, Scott Bukela, my, uh, the mm. guest starring in Strange Bukela? Works. Bukela? Who's Bukela? That's how pronounced. Bacula. But, Bacula. Like Dracula. Bacula. <laughs> yeah, but, but the, there's a rumour broken, broken this week that he's going to be in Strange New World. Yeah, but you've got to consider the source of that, and the source was um, Giant Freaking the Robot. Sort of, the source is sort of like a 50-50. It, it, sometimes, no. they're, sometimes they're really good at breaking stories, no. and sometimes they just make up loads of shit. No, it's... News, and as soon as it's in article news, it's definitely it's, not happening. That's like an official thing. It's we got this covered in giant freaking robot, and you know, if they said the sky were blue, I'd be skeptical. But <laughs> you, ne- you never know, I'm not disparaging those websites. Um, read yeah, them, they have broken a couple of news stories, so they have been right a few times with these exclusives. Yeah, much but... like the broken clock twice a day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, be- uh, I'll believe it when I see it, but you never know. I'm, I'm... Law of averages. Law of I'm... averages. If you make up that much bullshit, you're bound to just accidentally yeah, get on the I'd, I'd like to see Captain Archer return in some form, maybe to wrap up the Temporal Cold War and explain what we're going on there. That'd be quite nice. But Maybe as a hologram character in maybe Strange New Worlds. It could be, could <laughs> be, but we'll find out. Anyway, shall we talk about Far Beyond the Stars then? Just quickly, if it was strange he was, wouldn't that just be like he could be Admiral? He like that would still be in his lifetime. I would have yeah, it, yeah, it'd yeah. Be, it'd be, it'd be old. old. So you could maybe have him sending them off on the latest mission, sort of a bit like DeForest I mean, Kelly did in Next Generation. Yeah. And let's face it, Scott Scott Bro- Broncular or whatever he's called, like uh, like he's he's probably about the right age to to play it's like Cage. Like he's he's a few years old. That's all I'm saying. Like he's, he's not. No, he's come on. He's not a hundred years old. <laughs> yes, yeah, like they're meant to live. They're meant to like age better in the future. Yeah. True. Okay. <laughs> um. So yeah, we we've lost all of the the Scott Bronchular fans so far. But anyway, <laughs> right. Let's talk about Far Beyond the Stars then. So this is obviously one of. The most famous Deep Space Nine episodes. I would, I would argue probably when people talk about like the, 
the classic DS9s, there's usually this one's mentioned and usually in the Pale Moonlight, which uh, both from season six, which I always think that's pretty good going if a show's putting out classic episodes in its sixth season, you know, yeah. not making any disparaging remarks about next gen six seasons. They did give us Chain of Command, but it wasn't exactly firing on all cylinders at that point. It had got not in a rut, but it had got, uh, you know, it, it had mastered its formula, shall we say, and it was somewhat formulaic. But, yeah, to be bashing out an episode like this and like in The Pale Moonlight in your sixth season, I think is really, really impressive. And obviously... As opposed to Next Generation, <laughs> Next Generation was always hit and miss, whereas Deep Space Nine built as it went along. Like, they had some of the best episodes that are later on in the run. Because yeah. to begin with, it was trying to be the next generation mm. and just copying storylines which had been done by the next generation, some which had been taken from original series. So it was the third iteration by that stage of some of these stories. Whereas by uh, series four, like that's when you hit real payday, when it starts to be its own thing and create its own law and create its own really original stories and have unrunning arcs, which like were never really done in Star Trek. So, like... It actually got better and better as it went on. Yeah, I think that's fair. And it also, I think, got the confidence to be more experimental because this is a really out there episode, really, when you look at it on paper. Well, the, yeah, this is also part of an arc, though. With it is. This little part where he, how he goes back in time. It is. Well, is he going back in time? What It's... It's always a bit obscure what's actually Yeah, happening. I think we'll talk about that sort of more, probably more when we get to the end of the episode. But yeah, there's definitely some things I want to pick up on there and how it all fits in and whether it works within that context. I don't think there's any question that it works as an hour of television and you know, a very powerful hour of television, but how it fits into the, the grander... DS9 storyline, I think we'll, we'll, yeah, probably save that for the end to avoid tripping over ourselves. But so, yeah, it's to me, this feels like the DS9 writers really wanted to tell this story. Like, <clears throat> we want to tell a story about a black writer struggling to get something published and all the problems that come with that and all the um impacts on society and what it's like to live in that time and all of this business and then obviously you can't do that on ds9 normally without having a metaphor like you could have them they can go to a planet and they can find a planet that's suffering similar things and you can do that you could you could, yeah you could go the tos route couldn't you yeah. have them half black face half white face. you could but i yeah. think they really wanted to tell this story without necessarily any of that extraneous stuff and just get down to it and tell it and so they construct a little bit of a framework to do that but if we're honest the the actual framework to do it within the context of deep space nine isn't huge it's basically cisco starts getting visions and there we are we're off before the end of the teaser which you know i'm I mean, within this context, I'm happy with it because it gets us to the story. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's the two things there. One is the fact that they go straight into it. Like they don't do a, they don't feel the need to do a MacGuffin of like, oh, let's have an orb which is delivered to the station. Yeah. This is the travel back to back history or like, you know, they don't feel like the need to add an extra thing there. They can just go into the story. So 
and also kind of like I like the ideas that the um, the prophets are so powerful and so kind of omniscient that I think they use the orbs because it makes the humans and the Bajorans and everyone else feel more comfortable. Whereas I don't think they need it. I think they can just reach yeah. out and play with your mind like they're doing here. And this, they use that idea that they just go for it. And the prophets are definitely somehow linked in. How is kind of open to interpretation. But I'll get into it a bit more as we get into it. When you say about kind of like them hitting the nail on the head with just going straight into the race issue as opposed to hiding it behind a kind of like a metaphor. I also think they use it as a kind of link to like this history with race, this kind of thing that we're going to tackle, this links directly to Starfleet. And like when, like, again, we'll get into a bit later, but I think the metaphor between the hope of Starfleet and what it represents of what it kind of like, is everyone really working together? Mm -hmm. Everyone really fighting for the same vision and the threat from Cardassia and from the Dominion against that, against that hope, against that unity, I think makes it a perfect metaphor for racism because like that is the, and the, the opposite of hope, like racism and hate and all this bigotry. And so like that threat to Starfleet represents that kind of antithesis of hope because Starfleet is all hope. Yeah. So I like that kind of mirror. I think you, I think you're right, but I think structurally it, they are doing it the opposite way. Whereas usually we would have whatever our A story is, whether it's as Elliot says, the aliens with, you know, black on one side, white on the other side. And then the work that the audience has to do, and okay, in that one it wasn't too much of a jump, but the work the audience does is go, oh, I see how this relates to that. You know, I see how this relates to a real life thing. Whereas what this is doing is presenting a real life thing and the audience is having to do the work of, oh, I see how that relates to Star Trek. And, you know, so it's, yeah, uh, like, it's a different like, experience. Like this, this, in, this episode <coughs> could be just a one-off special show shown on TV. Yeah. They've just they've bracketed it into DS9 with a couple of minutes at each end. Yeah. This very. is the story of a... a this is literally a story showing the struggles of being a black man in 1950s America. Yeah, absolutely. You yeah. get very, very minimal changes. It's, it, 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 we're watching it as part of Star Trek, but the whole, this whole story could be anything. It could be, it, if you took them a couple of minutes off, this would still be a powerful drama on TV. Yeah, absolutely. It could be just yeah. a one-off hour drama you know like be i don't know in america if they have an equivalent but the bbc sometimes <laughs> does this where they'll have almost like an anthology series on a theme or something and yeah. you know this could be dropped in the middle of that um, so let's let's look at it then so we do, we do start as you say with a traditional star trek opening so we're in the middle of the Dimin well, dominion war and we, yeah we well we've got there's something at the beginning here, and we have Cisco questioning if he should carry on as captain. Yeah, exactly. Or should he be resigning? But this is never addressed later on. No, I think the implication is that this episode convinces him not to do that. Yeah, but yeah, that was my feeling. But I, like, they've also got. I, I was just going to say, like, I, I think this is the setup of it because if we want to ascribe a motivation to the prophets and we'll get into whether it is the prophets or not later but basically what they're setting up is Cisco's lost his friend 
is he going to leave Starfleet? And so what's acted out is effectively a morality play that convinces him, no, you shouldn't give up. But the bones that they hang that on are absolutely bare. And like Elliot says, we don't do anything with that afterwards. We've not done anything with that until now. You would think that with a show that got us serialised as DS9, we would have had a bit of an arc of Cisco starting to feel this fatigue and getting to the stage where he might do that. And then it culminates in this episode. But instead, we don't. We very, very briefly skim over that stuff to get us where we need to go to tell this story. I mean, it's very much what they did in DS9, though. They had these overrunning arcs, and then they had a standalone episode. I like the fact they wove it in a bit more, because sometimes they would just really have a Star Trek standalone episode, and it was like, what happened to the Dominion War? Like, why are we not, why yeah. are we kind of like, losing this? Whereas this nicely kind of framed it within that, and then told its own story, which I kind of liked. I love the fact that you've got his dad there, um, played by Brooke Peters. Uh, so I've got the cast names in front of me, so I don't forget anyone, but... Uh, I like the fact, though, like it was kind of one of those things whereby they've set a precedent in the past, so they have to explain away. So it was like in the past episodes, you go, I've never left Earth, I never will. And this one, he's going, well, you sure picked a time <laughs> to leave Earth for the first time. I'd better mention that so the canon people don't get annoyed. You know, it's like, yeah, it was, it was the one thing forced in this episode and it just made me laugh so hard, but I kind of enjoyed it. I mean, yeah. I mean, does his dad need to be on the station? You know, to tell uh, this story, it, I don't think he does. It is he there just I, so that when... I don't when... think his dad's there for this story, but I think there's other parts of it around with other episodes a bit later on where his dad sort of played an important yeah, role. Yeah, I mean, I'm wondering if he's there so that the audience can remember this is what Cisco's dad looks like, so that when we get into the Benny Russell story, we recognise him when he's playing the other role. Yeah. Because I I don't feel like him actually physically being on the station brings a lot to it. And, you know, not that I'm decrying his performance or anything. I think he's fantastic. And obviously, you know, he, he clearly the Cisco family changed the name from Cartwright after the whole incident at Camp Kittimer and, you know, have moved on from having a, a bad admiral in the family tree. But, you know, it's good to know. So... I like the bit where Cisco... <laughs> I just realised what you did. You... Ah. <laughs> See. So um, there's a bit where I like the the way they both play it. Like Cisco, and we talked about this when we talked about The Visitor, like how Avery Brooks can convey these familial relationships so effortlessly. Like... He acts, even though Cisco, we've always seen, is a really strong guy in in charge of his his circumstances, his surroundings. But you see flashes of a little kid who needs to lean on his dad a little bit in these scenes, you know, where he's talking to him about wanting to leave. This also shows a great dynamic of him showing the family he's willing to drop his defences when he's with his dad. Yes, exactly. And and he'll tell his dad the truth of how he feels and his his dad doesn't ever tell him what he's got to do no but he it just seems to nudge him in the right direction he seems to know what the right thing is to do to to make Cisco choose himself the yeah, right yeah, thing I might I add as well I think um, uh, Cisco um, Avery Brooks is a very powerful ingredient like he for me 
is the Nicolas Cage of Star Trek. Like, mm-hmm. He can give the biggest performances. And when he's in the zone, when everything is right, when it, and when he's surrounded by top-notch actors such as the ex-planer's dad, he knocks it out of the park. There's a couple of lines even in this where he does go very, very large. But like generally, this shows what a wonderful performance he can. Other ones, you've got him kind of like uh, in the Klingon episode. Um, it's one of the Klingon episodes, and he's going, Boast all you like, but no one gets between me and the blood wine. Like he fully shouts. Oh, uh, yeah. And he can go for those performances if it's not in the right position. But like this one, he is surrounded by great actors giving great roles. Like all the regulars get to play different parts and they take them with relish. And I think it elevates his game. And he is just given such a meaty role to kind of really sink his teeth into in this. Yeah. That it really just lifts. This him. is another of those episodes where. I imagine that most of the cast really enjoyed doing this episode, not for the story, but just that they didn't have to get up hours early to have masses of makeup put on. Yeah. yeah. That it was probably a bit team. like that. To someone like um, Armin Shimmerman playing Quark, he's probably thinking, this is great. I'm doing the same amount of work, but it's actually a half week to me. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, the other actors. Uh, you, particularly the the women in this, they've got to have the hair done like fifty style, so that probably took a while. Not a problem for Amin, so yeah, he yeah. probably <laughs> managed to come in. I, I also love the fact, like, that what this reminds me is like, uh, like in the next generation, you've got Geordie, like, and when he doesn't have the visor for for whatever episodes or in the films, like, you suddenly realise, man, and he's got the biggest kind of most beautiful eyes. Like, it's kind of weird that that's the actor who ends up with the visor. Yeah. Michael Dorn, similarly, both Next Generation and DS9, man, he's a handsome guy. Like, he's usually hidden under a corner. Yeah. Of the True. And he's just one of the best looking guys. Like, he, sorry, he's just like, he's a looker, you know. It's, uh, it's kind of funny how, like, these people, mind you, then you see uh, the guy who plays Martok. It doesn't look bad with his makeup. Like, it probably, probably doesn't hurt him. Yeah, you, you, you can very much tell that's Martok. Yeah, even without yeah. the voice, he doesn't he's maybe look. Maybe not so much a looker. He doesn't look that different, bless him. But yeah, so it, just going on what you were saying about Avery Brooks, like I think not that I'm ever saying that he phoned it in as Cisco because I don't think he did. But you can see when an episode or an idea really lights a fire in him, and this one obviously does. And you can see in his eyes there's a different intensity to him in this episode than what he usually brings. And I think that's brilliant. And obviously he directed the episode as well, so he's putting a lot of heart and soul into this one. And to bear in mind they made these episodes on like, you know, seven, eight days, something like that. So it's a really short turnaround anyway. But to say that Avery was directing this and giving that central performance, the man must have been knackered, but it doesn't show anywhere. Well, that's it, yeah. I'm going to say as well that, that like, probably it's not an insult to him, but, like, there's some actors who can sell bad dialogue and make it just sing, as well as being able to form good dialogue. I think Avery Brooks, he makes good dialogue. He elevates it like crazy. But he probably isn't the best for elevating bad dialogue. He'll just he'll just do an out there performance, and it will not yeah. necessarily save the I bad dialogue. Th- I think the thing with Avery Brooks, and we will definitely get into it. Obviously, he's got a very notable scene where he gets to show off his acting in this one. But 
I think the thing is you've got to be tuned into his wavelength sometimes to get the performance. <laughs> and I can understand somebody who isn't familiar with Cisco, isn't familiar with the characters, the situation, could watch it and like you say, with you know, the Nicolas Cage comparisons very apt, like you could look at some of Avery Brooks's performances and go, nah, he's a bit naff. And I, and I would include the big scene in this episode under that heading. I'm not saying I feel that way, but I could see how people might find it amusing um, because of the way he does it. But I think if you are tuned into that, I think it's incredible. And we, we will talk about the big scene a bit later on. Um, but yeah... Either way, like to give the performance to direct the episode, he's er he's earned his money this week with this episode as Avery, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um so yeah, should we skip to where we actually get into the meat of it then? We have a little bit where we get a little flash of like he sees Odo or Odo's character. And I'm gonna do this throughout the episode. I'm just gonna refer to the people as what they're normally called you most way through, because I can't remember yeah, everybody's sees, yeah. name. Works for me. And you know, he sees Worf as well as the ball player, and then he steps through a door, gets hit by a car, and that's the end of the teaser, and we're into it. Um that we do get a little bit, don't we? Like Bashir's saying, Oh, he's got his brain patterns are similar to last year when he he did the thing where he dug up the the it was a city, wasn't it? He digs up a city that's hidden. Yeah. yeah. Um the Rapture, is it that episode, I think? Um, yeah, I think it, that's which one you mean. Yeah, and they're talking about... So we, we can tell it's something to do with the prophets. There is an external influence causing this. It's not just Cisco having a, a breakdown of some kind. So we know there's something going on. But then pretty much the rest of the episode, we're, we're thrown into it and we we get everybody in these brilliant little roles. Like straight away you get Nog as the... Um, like the newspaper sales guy. And he's brilliant. Like, you never see Aaron Eisenberg, like, his face. You, I think, other than in documentaries, that's the only time I've seen him without makeup yeah. on. Yeah. But it, I genuinely don't... I, I'm not a huge Nog fan. No no disrespect to him. Obviously, he's a wonderful actor and everything, and Nog had his moments. But sometimes that character was written very annoying. This one just shows kind of what a wonderful actor he is. I think this really showcases him. Yeah, it's great to say it's probably a minute screen time, if that, but he does a really good job with it and it puts us in the place and time. And we meet, I like O'Brien as well. Like He's the first of the main cast that we see and he's this sort of maybe a little bit stuffy and he's sort of got his pipe and everything. So I like... Very nervous. Yeah. Yeah. As well. It's sort of extenuating yeah, elements of everybody's personality, isn't it? Like, so Brian can be a bit like that, particularly, particularly with him being a non-commissioned officer. He he can be like that around people of rank. You know, he, he can be very sort of subservient and very humble. I think O'Brien at times and very charming as well. Like this, this character is endlessly charming. As I think O'Brien's kind of got in spades as well. He's kind of like the Irish doesn't hurt, but you know, he's just a charming guy. And I think that comes through in this film. Yeah. And you've got Odo and Quark are still antagon antagonistic to each other in this reality. Kind of yeah. Flipped. yeah. Because like, you know, Odo for the most part is the 
arsehole, basically, like whereas Quark is usually the dishonest one. And you've got Quark as the one who's standing up. Like, yeah, he's a bit ornery about his donuts. But apart from that, he's a pretty stand-up guy who wants kind of right to be done by uh, Cisco's character. Yeah. And, yeah, I suppose it is different in that sense. Yeah, like you say, that Odo's in the wrong, Quark's in the right. But the... the I don't don't know because... um... Like Odo, we've already seen that he it was compliant in the Cardassian rule of the station. That's true. It was willing mm. to be, so he's willing to go along with what whoever's in charge tells him. You're right. I don't know. I think the idea. I mean, I always bought that as like in the past, but like as he's gone in, he's become, um, you know, he, he like our, our present day Odo in Deep Space Nine is pretty much a stand-up guy. Just his past is shady. Mm, but then and he did. Yeah, I, so I think I think this is just bringing, reminding us all that this guy, he did work for the Cardassians and, and he switched allegiance to the Federation. And we see at the end that he goes back to the fa- to be with the founders. And we're not far and removed. Odo, but Odo will follow whoever's it. The rule of whoever's in charge to an extent. Yeah, we're not far removed from that six-episode arc at the start of season six where Odo, he doesn't become complicit in what the Dominion Cardassian Alliance are doing, but for several episodes there, he does nothing to stop it. And at yeah. one point he says, you know, it's not my problem. I'm I'm with the other shapeshifter now sort of thing. So, yeah, I'd never picked up on that, Elliot, but that's... That's brilliant. That is a trait of Odo that, yeah, you've got this yeah. guy who's going, look, the publishers are not going to let it fly. And yeah. so I've got to go along and with it. it. And, it's like, and it's like when he goes, um, the publisher wants us to have a photo shoot to show who's behind the stories. And he goes to uh, Major Kira, um, sleeping late that day. And then, it, yeah. and then he goes... Oh, and I suppose I'm sleeping in late as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you can't have a you can't have a woman writing for the for the magazine, and you can't have a black man writing for the magazine. Okay, so what's our parallel with Oda? Is with um, Quark? Sorry, because I, I that's a really good argument. I like that. It's interesting. I'm gonna want to think about it more. But I think with Quark, Quark to I me, just indifferent. I think Quark's a very misunderstood character. Like, but we see here that Quark said negotiating. He's going. Well, why don't I go to an, to this other uh, magazine? They've got so and so, so and so, so and so. They'll pay me for my four cents uh, a word, and I'll get my fresh donuts every day. And he's negotiating. Mm. There for his own, his own his own benefit. He's yeah, not negotiating. negotiating. But like the, but the, the bit see, where he's sorry. But you do see when uh, he's arguing for Benny's case, we also see that. He argues for Ferengi to stay the same and not follow what the Grand Nagus does at the end when he appoints Snog and all that. And he and he does have a rebellious nature, does Oh yeah. Walk. Like but but that's kind of he's rebelling to kind of keep its stasis there. In here he is fighting for change. Like he I, I find it hard to kind of square that with I know he's saying about him being misunderstood, and obviously they well, do show as time goes on well, that he's actually I, more good than he kind of lets on. Well, to, Quark for the most part, make, he is saying that he's all for greed. Here, this is but not Quark about, has this always is about said, good that or, doesn't benefit him. For the whole of DS9, since the very beginning, Quark has always said, I'm a people person. <laughs> yes, it is true. for everyone. 
Yeah, I think I this think, is more of a stretch on this one. Yeah, I, Odo, you had me. Quark, I'm not sure. I think Quark. Yeah, the the character that he's playing in this is far more altruistic than Quark, or far more outwardly altruistic. I think Quark's one of these characters that he's got a heart of gold and he will do the right thing. But I think that is tempered by his very strongly Ferengi beliefs, whereas this guy doesn't appear to have that. In fact, almost the opposite. At one point, he's accused of being a communist, and though he reacts badly to that, but, <coughs> but it is mooted at one point. So, yeah, it's it's really interesting. You've got other little bits that, again, are not sort of one-to-one comparisons, like... Bashir's set up as a fantasy writer rather than a sci-fi writer. Like, the rest of them write sci-fi. And it shows how well-drawn these characters are within this space of this one episode that you get this thing of there's almost a little bit of snobbery, like, oh, he just writes the fantasy, you know what I mean? We're we're a sci-fi magazine. We deal with the hard sci-fi. You just write fantasy, Julian, you know. you, You stay in your corner and write your fantasy. And I don't see why Bashir would be the character. I don't see anything in Bashir's character to make him the the fantasy writer. Maybe, you know, he's into his holodecks um, and stuff like that. So maybe there's a Davey, little bit... Davy Crockett, the James Bond type yeah. thing that they do. So he's the in, fighter he... pilots, his uh, fantasies that he had about uh, Jadzia Dax. Um, but he's I also... But he's also an incredibly scientific person Bashir in the real in world. The fantasy world. <laughs> yeah, the, yes, but he's also a doctor and he's very much driven by the science, you know, so and I don't quite get the correlation. Similarly with Martok as an artist and... Um, well, yeah, this is I get Go on. I get that as well because that's Martok, Martok bringing forward all the different plans. Yeah. Because he used to come to the planning sessions and go oh, well, we've got this going on, this going on, this going on, this going on, and it's like, which one, who, which fleet or ship should go where? Okay, and it's so... almost the same as what he does with the story, with the paintings, dishing them out for the stories. Okay, so right. there's a little what, bit of... What's, what was a baseball player go? Well, at least he's not a football player in this reality because he's killed people doing that. Um... I don't know. Worf's a hard one, isn't it? It's competitive. <laughs> Worf, no, no. Worf, I think there is something because it's not that he's a baseball player. It's that he is presented as a black man in a time of great intolerance, but who is tolerated to a degree because of his skill set, effectively. So he's a man straddling two worlds, much as Worf is with his Klingon heritage, but living within the, uh, Federation. Within the Federation. And you, 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 know, do, you do get that no, scene. Gonna, Go on, sorry. No, I was just going to say, like, I love all this, but I think you've thought about this much more than the writers did on this, this front. I think the writers <laughs> no. have crafted a wonderful episode, but I think you guys no, have done I a lot think, of work. I think the writers have actually tried to look at a character trait. I'm not sure I agree with the Martok thing. That. But I do think I do think Worf, I do think it's there because you do have that scene where they talk about, well, why do you still live here? Why don't you live there? And he's like, well, our people are not welcome there, even yeah, though they'll tolerate, they'll tolerate me working in their world, yeah. but they won't tolerate me living in it. Yeah, I can I can dress the dress. I, I, I you know I can afford expensive clothes and I can 
walk the walk and everything, but I cannot be fully part of that world because that is not who I am. And I think there is elements of that in Worf. Um, but, but yeah, baseball specifically, okay, not quite sure where. I suppose... I, I, I think what... I, I literally think that they've taken one character trait about them and gone, right, let's... Obviously, they can't be the same, but let's sort of like... Bashir has fantasies. Okay, he's the fantasy writer. Uh, O'Brien works with machines. Okay, he's... Yeah, that one's... He's the engineer. Okay, he right, writes okay, about yeah. robots. Quark, we know, is, a, is always out for himself. Okay, he's negotiating for a better deal than everyone else for himself. Let, let me let me have, like... There's this one which I think they might have, if they've done this and kind of like... Okay, I'll, I'll kind of hand the rights that they've done. I'll oh, so the one that you point the out, they obviously one. intended, but me and Elliot are making no, it no, all no, up. No, 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 yeah, no, no, yeah, no, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm saying if we're going to say that they did all these things, uh, one which I'm wondering if they purposely went the opposite route. So um, young Jake Sisko as kind of this kind of streetwise kid. I'm wondering if his character then is maybe the opposite of what he is. Because like in our world, if you like, in the DS9 world, he is uh, Cisco's son. He's been brought up in a stable environment, and thusly you get that gentleman. What about like if in this like dark mirror that we're going through here, if he was meant to be like without that family environment, without that kind of stable background, maybe that's what he becomes. He becomes a bit more yeah, Jake's more of a role. And you do still have the case of uh, Benny Cisco. He's trying to put him, keep him on the straight and narrow and straighten him out, and there's mm. no family tie. Um, suggested in this, it's just as if he knows him as a young man in the neighborhood, but he's taking the time to sort of go. You need to stop doing this, you need to do this instead. You're going to get in trouble if you keep doing this. So, he has still got that almost parental lookout for him, how he's trying to keep him from harm. I suppose also there's an element of Jake's thing in the real world is that he's a writer, but we've got to have Cisco as Benny assuming that role in this story. So there isn't really room to put Jake into that in this version. So we've got to do something different with him. Um, he but, could have been, if they did want to go that route, he could have been the kind of like the um, work experience, basically the equivalent of that, yeah. so like the um, apprentice. I, but I don't think, I like the, the, I don't think the work and the opposite. I've, I think the time that we're looking at having Benny in the office as a black man, is a push for them to get away with. So I don't okay, think the that donut boy a, then. A sec- like could... So I don't think we'd have a second. Yeah, I think it would have diluted the story the a little bit. Having if you were going to go that route, then I suppose you go by the idea that he's kind of the office kid. He's the kind of yeah. Guy, just a guy. Oh, you just have him as and... you have him as Cisco and Cassidy's son in this reality as well. You know, but there there is something yeah. about what happens with Jake that I'll I'll touch on, but. Uh, yeah, so some characters are closer than others, I think, is what we've established. Yeah. Ducat and Wayuna's fascist police, I think, is pretty accurate. I think that one... I don't see the parallel there. No? No? Okay. <laughs> uh, maybe you need to do another rewatch just to, to get up to speed. Um, but, yeah, and you get that very first sort of scene with them where... They're just basically talking about arresting him for no reason at all. Because he dropped a, being, he dropped a being painting black without a license. To pick back up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you being know. black without a license is his crime. Yeah. yeah, and you know the thing about that, and I'm sure we'll say this more than once as we go through this episode, but 
it it was true at the time that this is set, but it's still true now, and it's you know, it's frightening. Yeah. The thing with an episode like this is, we should be able to watch this and go. The shock should be, I can't believe society used to be like that. But the shock of watching it... I think it, the shock is that society is still like yeah, that. Yeah, we have not moved an inch on that barometer and we we should have done, you know. It's, I, I it's mean, terrifying. For me, me as well, I love the fact that this episode, what I particularly love about this episode is, like you say, it does tackle it face on and it does do it in a way that it frames it so that it works within the context of a Star Trek episode. What I don't like is like when they had um, in future episode where they have uh, Vic Fontaine with their club mm. and Cisco gets his nose out of joint because his, I think he says something along the lines and you know, apologize if I get this wrong but our kind wouldn't have been allowed in there at that time. Yeah. yeah. I didn't like that only for the fact that within the confines of Star Trek and like I know DS9 is the kind of rebel Star Trek a little bit but in Star Trek, they've established that in this age, the whole point of why it's so hopeful is because they have got beyond that. People don't even think in terms of that because that was the past, and it's not like we should forget the past, but that is in the past of mankind. Yeah. And think... In that one, it sort of flies against that. With this, they get to have their cake and eat it too. They face on tackle race, and I've got no problem with them doing that, but it doesn't in a way which matches with Star Trek. Like, the hope is Starfleet in the future. And the despair is the idea of Kardashian and uh, the Dominion taking over, which so aptly shown when the fascist police are kicking the shit out of them. Yeah. And, like, that represents that. So, like, it's racism, which is kind of the, the antithesis of hope, meeting that hope. And, and that's what I kind of, like, love about this episode. It does it so perfectly that it works within the world we're meant to be in with it. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. Just to pick up on your point about the the future episode with... Cisco's issue in that one is because he feels that the Hollow program is a dishonest representation of a past time. He wouldn't have an issue if it wasn't set in that era. It's just that yeah. he says, you know, this this is a fantasy version of the past, and it's kind of whitewashing the history, and that yeah. that's his issue. <laughs> oh, I but... don't understand that. I, I don't understand that. It just felt like it's almost like. Again, the whole idea is this future is so good, so perfect, that when Uhura meets Abraham Lincoln and he accidentally says something kind of like not cool about race, she's going, it's like, oh, I didn't even notice it. Like, that is so much not Yeah, issue. no, that is good. It doesn't and... even enter my radar, whereas with DS9, it kind of suggests that it is still. Like, I, get, I love the parallel of whitewashing history, and that's kind of very important stuff to explore. But with Star Trek, you kind of got to be careful about doing that. You don't say that this future isn't as perfect as we want it to be. This whole point is, this is better than us. This is better than anything we could dream of. Yeah. Yeah, no, but again, I don't think it's doing that in that episode. I think Cisco's his issue is about the representation of the past rather than anything that's going on there. But anyway, we'll we'll cover that when we do. I understand that. It's just the fact that it's on his radar, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I see what you mean. Like, like, why would it even occur to him? Like, yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll cover that when we do Bada Bing, Bada Bang, I believe the episode's <laughs> called. Um, so uh, just one thing, going back to Martok and his um, pictures, uh, I just find this interesting, and I don't know how true this is of a representation of how they worked, but I find that fascinating, this idea that the artist is the first person to create the artwork, and then go to the writers, right, you need to write a story based on these pictures. I, to me, that just seems like the wrong way around. 
of how a magazine um, should work. I would have thought they write the stories and the artist. I, I think it makes a bit of sense because if these guys and these writers are, make, are tasked with putting out a brand new original story every month and having a picture's inspiration yeah. must be a big help on that instead of trying also, to think, oh, what can I think, think of now? So having also, a picture... Person... Sorry, Sorry, I was just going to say, where's the monthly periodical? Probably the art's really important to it. It's got to kind of like catch the eye first and then they'll yeah. read the story. So I guess that I can see why the horse might... Yeah, maybe so. It was just... Before the it was yeah, just not imagine, a process like, I was familiar with. I found it really yeah. interesting. Mm. I'd have to yeah. look if, if it really happened, but I could see why it, be, it would be done that way, that they tagged out the painting. It could, go, lead, it could lead to problems, though. Like, you know, it's like... Right, okay, we're at, we're at the 12th issue of Amazing Stories and you know, every issue there's a story with a woman who's got six tits and it's like, what's going on with this artist of yours? And it's just Martox there with his cigar like, oh, i got another one for you here. You, know, you get a bit fed up. <laughs> I, like it. I might have had too much Starkey, I think he says that. Yeah, he does say that, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, so who haven't we covered? Oh, Cassidy, so... And I think Penny Johnson's brilliant in this episode because I do think she's a wonderful actress. Like, Cassidy's almost got not a hard edge to her, but there can be almost a bit of a coldness to her sometimes. And I think she drops that completely and she's so much warmer in this episode than she sometimes is. I mean, I think most of the time Cassidy's lovely, but it's notable how much of a a different spin on the same sort of archetype she's playing. And also, just going on to Penny Johnson's other career, in 24, she's fantastic as uh, Sherry Palmer. She, it's, you couldn't, I couldn't believe when I saw that that was the same actress who played Cassidy Yates. And I know that's and what actors do, but... <laughs> and the oval, and she never ages. She just must be kept in top <laughs> Very of true. Just looks no different. Yeah. It's but, like, you know the woman who plays the Keiko Bryant so I'm going up from slight ten. Yeah, Rosalind She Chow. was in MASH, and she looks the same. I, she just, these people... But yeah, she was, in, she was in that new Mulan film, um, and yeah, it's not much. From MASH to Mulan, and you don't age, that's just some voodoo shit. Though. Exactly. Um, so, but yeah, Penny Johnson is wonderful, you're right. Completely yeah, she's great, so and they've got this thing of... It's sort of showing like the working class struggle, which is obviously accentuated because not only are the working class, but they're black working class, so it makes it even harder. And it's almost kind of flipping gender norms because she's kind of having to support Benny in this. And I just realised, sorry, saying that character's name might set your dog off, Squeeze, so I apologise. Um, but, yeah, Cassidy's... <laughs> On headphones, we're good. That's oh, okay, then. So, yeah, Cassidy's sort of been the the breadwinner and it's okay well let's buy this business and there is almost a degree of kind of male pride that kicks in where he gets no 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 i'm gonna write these stories and it's gonna be fine you don't have to do that and but it's also it's not an immediate buying a business either is it though it's like no, it's a couple of years talking about maybe retiring in a few years and i can have first refusal on the business so. yeah it's yeah. not a surefire yeah. thing to pin your future on, really, is it? It's. Um, but... and I want to get continue on with these characters, which is me a bit. Just, can I just quickly give a shout out to, to Dax as well? Terry Farrell obviously can play these characters, which are good time girls, kind of all day long. But she really gets a bit short shrift in this. She's just like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's just she like, does. Like, 
I wish he was given a bit more. Like, he can do so much more. And I think it's a bit kind of like uh, almost mean to just give her what they kind of like just take that party girl aspect because she can do so much more. Yeah, she it. sort of comes in as the dopey secretary. So she's got a worm in her belly. Ooh. And that's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's her sole contribution to the episode. Yeah. We, we didn't mention Sarek Croft before, which, um, Sarek Croft? Sarek Lofton. He, um, he in this episode, I was, I was messaging you about yeah, it, yeah. you raised a good point. So I said, he can be kind of a bit like, you know, I don't always love him. And you said, it's like, well, he can be bland. And I think that's it. Some, some of the episodes, he can be written very bland, occasionally edging a bit towards annoying. Whereas here, it just shows you, again, what a wonderful actor he is. Like where he's kind of given something a bit more electric to do. He's wonderful in this. I like, really was kind of like um, quite drawn to his performance. He's obviously learned a bit from Avery Brooks because give him a bit of facial hair and he's a different character, you <laughs> know. Because Cisco, once he grew the beard and shaved the head, that was when he really became yeah. Captain Cisco. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and, and there was real world things for that because that's how Avery Brooks looks and it's how he's always looked and that's how he wanted to look in DS9. And the producers say, oh, no, we can't do that. And it took him sort of four years to chip away at them enough to let him look like himself, yeah, which obviously there's parallels to... Yeah. He snuck it in a bit of a time. He's like, right, I'll just, just grow the beard in and then I'll just, just shave the hair like when they're not looking, you know. Yeah. He just snuck it in. Well, I mean, it's... But even that shows, you know, this was a, a forward-looking progressive series in the 90s. But they did, you know, I think the reason given was, was like, we don't want Cisco to look too urban or something, you know, and it's like, you, what? It's ridiculous. <laughs> but anyway, um, so yeah, Jake, he's sort of this bit of a wide boy, a little bit way, a little bit where, a little bit all over the place kind of thing. And like you, Elliot said earlier, like, there's still a, a paternal thing going on with Cisco. He's still very protective of him. He doesn't want him getting in trouble. But because the relationship isn't the same there, he can't do as much as Cisco might to protect Jake. And even going back to recent events in the show, Cisco hasn't always succeeded with that, like where Jake stayed on the station when they all had to evacuate and everything. So maybe this is kind of an extrapolation of that. Like, you know, if I can't keep older Jake, what's going to happen to him? I already left him on the station with the Cardassians and that could have gone terribly wrong. And maybe this vision is telling, you know, showing him one possible outcome for, for Jake there. Now, Jake as well, this is, I'm not going to use the word on air, but he uses the N word, the, the, you know, the, the one, <laughs> the, the bad one, because they use another N word quite, frequently in this episode which is period accurate and but again i won't use it on air because it's not not appropriate to our time but but then he actually says the really bad one and i was like whoa you know i've never noticed it in the episode before and he only says it the once but yeah for a a syndicated tv show in the middle of the 90s and let's not forget ds9 was shown I think when it first aired, it had an evening slot, but these were frequently shown at tea time and things like that. And yeah, I think it was about eight o'clock. It was shown. Yeah. in America. But to, to... I mean, I, I think for me, it was the sensitivity of knowing that, like, uh, for a black man who's had to live with this word, who will have grown up with this word, who would have been haunted by this word, like for them to use it to kind of take it back is very different. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, and I thought yeah. the way they did it was just perfect too. And I think you're right though. It was kind of like still a brave move. 
in a in Star Trek, in yeah, which is to, usually kind of equated with such wholesomeness, to have something so shocking, we're still brave. Yeah, movie. to hear it said, I was just like, whoa, I can't believe they actually went for that. And I can't believe the network let them get away with putting it in. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, so, Jake then. <clears throat> Ultimately, obviously, he gets killed. And, you know, this particularly... Um, Given we we did talk about doing this episode uh, last year during the first lockdown when we were doing time travel stories, and one of the reasons that we decided not to was because of the the civil unrest at the time. We just didn't feel it was. Yeah. We didn't feel really it'd be appropriate for us to start talking about it within a, a fictionalized context. But um, that's by the by for now. But what happens to Jake then? is he breaks into a car and gets shot by police. And considering what the ignition to everything that happened last year with Black Lives Matter and everything, again, it's just this thing of we have not progressed at all. And it's frightening. You know, this is so close to what's happening now. And I I just can't believe that... The, and. And it's not just that there was one incident last year that sparked it all. This happens all the time. And that's terrifying. And one, we've not moved on from the 50s when this episode was set. And two, we've not moved on from the 90s when this episode was made. And it, there's two time jumps there. And you'd think we'd have moved so on a little bit. Time jumps. Sorry, I'm um, becoming very is... inarticulate because it really strikes a chord when he does this, but I just can't believe it, you know. And for me, it's the fact that uh, every time we manage to move forward a bit where we take a black president, then we've got, as a reaction, have a racist president. You know, that, that's got to be the kind of counterpoint because you can't really yeah. move forward. One step and forward, two steps back. Yeah. Exactly. And, like, it just seems like there's such a fight against progress still. And for me, the thing that is so so striking about this as well is like I, I remember just the one um, someone who's kind of a gun activist on a podcast I was listening to. They were saying about like how um, oh yeah, this person kind of like uh, broke the law and he paid the ultimate price. And it's like it's just funny how the ultimate price seems to be a lot different depending on the tone of your skin, your kind of sexuality, any of these things. Like, yeah, yeah, that that's the ultimate price. Like I feel like if any of us three end up breaking the law, we might not pay the ultimate price, shall we say, for breaking the card that a black guy in America might. And, or even in this country, let's not even pretend it's not a problem here. No. Perhaps, to be honest with you, a worse problem on mass across America, but um, it's not like it is on our shores as well. It's a, yeah. No, it's, it's just absolutely ludicrous. And like you say, this idea of, oh, well, they broke the law. It, but we get to this thing of proportionate response, you know, regardless of what one's feelings are on capital punishment, that is a punishment that is reserved only for murderers, whereas Jake's character here has tried forcing a car door, you know, and that's the... And, and yeah, ben, he used the excuse he had a weapon. Yeah. He and a crowbar, he was trying to break into Yeah, exactly, car. and then he calls it out, doesn't he? He says a crowbar, and obviously they beat him, and that's an in, incredibly powerful sequence. And when it's happening, you get flashes of Demar and... Wei, not Demar, sorry, uh, Weyoun and Descartes. And I, I wonder... 
if this was a sensor thing, because those flashes make sense within the context of the story, but I wonder if they put it in just to bring you out of it that little bit to get away with how brutal it is, because this is brutal. Oh, and, it's totally brutal. And well, I, I think, if anything... Sorry, sorry. No, I, I, I just wonder if it was done so that they could get it through the network sensors to go, look, well... It's not really real because it's a vision and we're showing you that it's a vision by showing these flashes. And that's just something I wonder about personally. If, if, they, if they did that, for me, it's a Trojan horse because they might have like sold it to the network that way. But for me, it makes it more impactful because, again, what I was saying earlier, like uh, Starfleet and Star Trek is hope. It is about like this future is better. Mm. And anything in, in the story of Deep Space Nine, the threat which they really added was that the Kardashians and Dominion could be people who are taking away that hope. They do not believe in this vision of everyone being equal. And that's the threat to it. And so when they bring them in as the cops, like, mm. and they flash to them as the Kardashian and the Dominion, and they're kicking the shit out of him, it's like saying, it's like that, that kind of hope is being taken away with every kick. As it is kind of like in, in race issues, when someone's kind of like get the crap being out of them for, for the color of their skin, if you extinguish this hope of this bright future, that's what you're taking away, that kind of hope that we won't always live in this shit. We won't yeah. always live in this kind of, like, darkness of, of racism. That's, to me, why it's so powerful. Like, you know, I was saying before, like, um, and you touched upon this, the fact that uh, it's always like, uh, yeah, he had a crowbar. Or it's always like, oh, well, yeah, but that guy wasn't squeaky clean. He had this, that, and the other in his background. So because he's got any criminal record... He deserves a death penalty if he's kind of like a yeah. police team. That is that what we're saying? And that's the kind of thing. It's like again, it's kind of the um the triumph of bad over hope is so dark. I think like for me it just dialed it up. But you have to be into Star Trek and be into Deep Space Nine and understand the storyline to get that, which probably the censors didn't. And I think, fuck them, we got it past them. Sorry, pardon my language, but we got it past them. Like we, we Yeah, no. We like the Star Trek got one over the censors. They actually made it for me, more powerful through that. Yeah. No, I mean, as I say, it's just one of them ones that I, I just wonder about. But um, so let's talk about Benny's story then. So the main the main thing of the episode is Martok shows in that artwork, which is beautiful artwork, by the way, of um, Deep Space Nine, but it's sort of in a, a 50s retro style. And this prompts him to write this story of Captain Cisco. And I love that idea. I love just how meta it gets <laughs> that you've got Cisco playing a character who's writing Cisco's story, which I think is just brilliant. Um, there is a, a line at some point, though, where they're talking about the story and they say, oh, only a black writer could have created this character. And that that's ironic in a way because... A black writer didn't create Captain Cisco. It was Rick Berman and Michael Piller, who are very much two white guys. And so there's almost a metatextual comment there, um, which, in a way, it kind of undermines it a little bit. You know, I don't want to get into the whole issues of, you know, can a white person tell a black story, you know, all that business. Though, on the strength of this episode, it would seem the answer is yes. But... 
again, we've got to be conscious of the fact that we are three white guys talking about this episode. So, yeah. you know, we, we don't have the black experience of watching this episode. Well, we've still got it now with, um, um, like, uh, Rusty Davis has recently talked about, like, like, he wouldn't cast straight actors as gay people. And it's like, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Like, I do no, say I there's an argument, but acting and writers being able to use their imagination does that mean we get to tell other people's stories? I don't know. Like part of doing acting and writing, you know, being an actor, being a mm-hmm. writer is stepping outside of yourself, which is kind of a good thing to do. But at the same time, it's our place to take someone else's story. It's, it's a real kind of yeah, and it's, minefield. It's even more interesting within the content, the, you know, the context of this episode, because they seem to be saying that, no, you know, they, they seem to say, no, a white person should not be telling this story but the fact that we're watching this proves that that has happened so and you're not yeah. undermining your own show so that i mean that's a whole nother we'll get someone to write I, mean, I think the important thing about it was like you know uh it, it is the fact that obviously maybe brooks is front and center of this oh he's yeah directing it so he's put a sensibility on it that takes some of the sin off it but i don't know if it's right i i don't know yeah i mean i don't necessarily think it's a bad thing i just think it's interesting that they raise that point within the story when they've in fact done the opposite of the the point that they're raising um because then you sorry i'm going off on a tangent now but you do get into the other issues which is the underrepresentation behind the camera in hollywood you know which is getting better now but wasn't so great back then and you do come down to the issue of well if Berman and Pillar and Iris Stephen Bear hadn't wanted to tell these stories would anyone else have been able to you know so surely that's a a step towards good making sure these stories are told using your position to do that I don't know anyway it, um, it was a step in the right direction for the time like perhaps it's better now that we have more black yeah yeah it's an interesting one um so we could do like a whole series just on this episode but um we'll try and well, i mean actually one one which was an interesting line as well was when they were saying about um making a dream sequence to take the sin off it kind of so it could get published mm. um it was interesting that uh they had dax saying oh um you know, oh, would this person dreaming happen to be a black person? And like she said, it's like, well, it would have to be because they're dreaming of a black person being a cat. And it's like, that line alone was infinitely sad. What, like no one else, no white people could imagine a black person being cat? Like that just broke the sadness that there was yeah. well, that just imagination. Shows, that, that just that shows what it was like at that time. Yeah. yeah. And a white, no, no white, white writer would write a black man as a lead character. Or no, but all right, white character could be thinking of it was the idea. Like it was just even saying it would have to be a black person because no white person would ever imagine a black person yeah. being a cat. And that just like that was just so sad in and of itself. And at least the the episode does disprove that because the writers are you know they're saying a white person couldn't conceive of a black captain and the fact that this episode exists shows that that isn't the case so that at least is something um well in the 90s not in the 50s yeah (laughs) true oh yes of course or early 2000s whatever it is but um yeah so uh i'm trying to think there's so much to talk about in this one it is so tricky um there's a bit where o'brien's got random bongos 
Like when Cisco's coming in and telling his story, he's just there playing the bongos. No idea why, but I think it's <laughs> it's great. Well, I'm all there for that. Let's have more of them. Um, and then we get to the thing about they all love the story, but they say we can't publish it. And there's the bit where um, Odo says to him, if you want to publish it, make the character white. Simple as that. And I find that really interesting. You see, like, Gene Roddenberry kind of got a bit of that with the first pilot episode where it's like you can't have a woman as your first officer. Um, you know, obviously it's not exactly the same thing, but but it's interesting that Well that was prejudices of the sixties, wasn't yeah. it, towards women. And we do see a little bit of that in this episode, because mm. we've already seen Kira's not allowed to have a photo with anyone no. else as one of the writers. And that's we clearly before the the fact that the reason why um Brunbury had to use that metaphor was because if they just had a black and white race story, he wouldn't be allowed to do that. Yeah. Whereas if he made half black, half white <clears> on the face and then swapped over for the other race within the planet, that was allowed. And it was kind of his way of getting these stories told when you could not tell it uh, outright. Yeah. And the, the thing with Kira's character, I think that's a very deliberate nod to DC Fontana, who worked on the original series. And the reason she was credited as DC was because they, if she'd been credited as Dorothy, no one would have wanted to, to hire her. And so I think that that's a, a very deliberate thing there. I think Kira's meant to be our kind of standing for, for DC Fontana in that respect. And then you do get this thing of the story gets rejected and Jake is not surprised by it at all, you know, Benny's going to the diner and he's, oh, I can't believe they've done it. And he's like, oh, of course they're not going to. And that's when he uses the M-word, like, they'll always think of us as... Yeah. yeah and it's it shows, I suppose, like, you've been talking about Squeak, like, the, the optimism of it all. Jake's playing a character who has lost that, who has been broken of that, and is there is no point in us fighting this fight. We are never going to win it. So I'm just... And I think it's implied that that's why he's sort of gone to this life of crime because it's, well, I've no way of being able to support myself within this system because it's that steered against us kind of thing. So that's really interesting. And um, threaded through all this, we've got these encounters with Joseph Sisko, who's playing a, a preacher. And this is where you get the most sort of overt references to the in inverted commas, real DS9 world, because he, he does talk about the prophets. And obviously it works within the context of a street preacher, because you know, he could be talking about prophets of the Lord, but it seems to be linking it back to the prophets of Bejar and what Cisco needs to do and everything. But going back to your point earlier, Elliot, you wouldn't even have to change the dialogue here because that word prophets works both yeah, ways yeah. you know <laughs> this could just be a drama of the week kind of thing and um yeah so we get to after he's beaten and everything he goes back to work and he's hoping that he's going to see the publication of the magazine we see they agreed to this let's make it a dream so that we can get it published and it leads to this sort of euphoria from cisco and yeah it, he's He's getting a, a really good wage. He's getting three cents a, a yeah. word, which we've established is more than uh, other writers on this magazine are getting. Yeah, and he admits that he's made a concession to get it done, 
Because it's, well, what about all my other Cisco stories? Like, let's just get this one published. Get the first one done and see what happens. Yes. And then we'll see where we go. And, okay, I'll make it so it was a dream so that I can get it published. And, again, it shows that you had to make concessions even within the science fiction framework, even to get these things done. But, obviously, then it all goes wrong. They find out that they've had to pulp the story. And when he... And also, I think... Just quickly, just on that point, though, it just shows that um, whereas kind of like the, the white characters, as much as they were trying to do the right thing, they could they were going, like, well, what about the future stories? This guy's going, hold on. Getting one story published is a minor miracle. Let's just get this done. Then we'll worry about story two, three, four. Like, you are so, like, you know, you so <laughs> don't get it how monumental it is to get yeah. one story published. They no. can even concede that that's kind of like the victory, the first victory. Yeah, exactly. And that going back to his colleagues, there's an interesting thing there because you do see it, it seems like there is a camaraderie and it does seem like they care about him and everything. But it's implied that he's been off work for weeks and it's the first time any of them have seen him. None of them. Yeah, no one's gone to visit him. No one's visited him. No one's been to see him. And it shows that delineation between black and white. Like, you know, they they can or won't. Well, you yeah. Yeah, we heard you got the hell shit beaten out of you. But yeah. But the, yeah, they can or won't like visit a black neighborhood to see a black friend because that just wasn't done. And yeah, so they Odo comes in and says we're pulping the issue, and he to give him his dues, he tries to dance around it and doesn't directly say it's because of Benny's story. But yeah, but, but is, then it's, um, is that dancing around it for him or for? Also said I've got to sack you. Yeah, it's yeah. Benny's not an idiot, and he knows. And then it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna fire you and all this. And this is where Avery Brooks has his big scene that I touched on earlier. Now, despite what I said earlier, that I have known people who have seen this episode and found it extremely comical because of the the histrionics of his acting. And I'll admit that on occasion when I've seen it. Yeah, I found it a little bit funny sometimes. But, like I said, I think if you're attuned to it, it's incredibly powerful. Like, when I watched yeah. it um, today well, in prep this for this, all, this also it's breathtaking. Next time he comes back to this time. It does, yeah. And I want to get to that. Um, but how how do you guys feel about Avery Brooks's performance in this scene, then? Well, there's this one bit which he does earlier where he goes like... Uh, I keep on imagining I'm in another wall. And it does get very big. And like that, mm-hmm. for me, that bit kind of edges towards the comical, doesn't really sound Yeah, funny. that, in I know what this, you mean. In the second scene, at the beginning, it kind of like, I'm almost thinking it's like, oh God, that, that's a bit big, that's a bit weird. But then when he really, yeah, like you say, you tune into it. I find myself tuning into it, understanding the rage, understanding the passion. And it's almost like to begin with, it's like he's trying to force himself to cry. And then there's like a switch. Mm. And like it feels like there's a switch about five, ten seconds into it. Not very long, but suddenly it's like all too real. It's like he's he's found that moment. He's found the what he was trying to tap into. And I can just see it kind of changing in him. It just it's it's so powerful when that happens and he actually just gets into it and it's like this rage comes out. And I, I just feel like he's tapped into a place within himself, but it just took him a yeah. while. Yeah. I think there's a degree of as well that 
it's the emotion that he's showing is that raw that we're not used to seeing that and it it kind of makes you as a viewer almost feel a bit uncomfortable because we're witnessing something that's so that feels so private that you're not meant to see another person be you know beyond a loved one or whoever you don't usually see people this raw in terms of their emotions and it can make you feel a bit uncomfortable but i think that's probably a good thing because it, it shows it's having its effect and obviously the main thing that he's putting out there is it comes to this thing of you can't destroy an idea which ties into everything you've been saying Squee, about the federation and everything like that and i think ultimately that's the the lesson that cisco learns from all of this is that even if the war's not going well and everything, they've got to fight it because the idea of the Federation is the right one and that's worth fighting for and I think that's the lesson that he learns. But, yeah, it's powerful, powerful stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree and I just think there's, like, things well that... Um, I just love all... There's, there's so many kind of little... Um, nods to kind of like uh, where they're kind of trapped between two times two two ideas and mm. like you've got when he looks in the mirror it's just so slightly done sometimes you just he's a reflection of captain zisco and he just it, it kind of parallel between the two fights he's in and yeah. kind of again hope versus darkness is just so kind of well realized i think and you get the you know the the preacher joseph Cisco says at the end like you are both the dreamer and the dream and I think this is an early hint, just tying it back into the bigger DS9 narrative. I think this is a bigger, an early hint of Cisco's true nature in that he's half-profit. You know, it, it's yeah. implying you are able to see things in a non-linear fashion. You know, you're, you're, yeah. you're the storyteller and the story, you're the dreamer and the dream. And I think it ties in wonderfully there. And Elliot, you mentioned earlier... We do see Benny Russell again at the start of season seven. And yeah. it's when Cisco's trying to open the orb of the emissary. And they do a great bit there because they use um, Demar, the actor, uh, Casey Biggs, I think it is, who plays Demar, as the, the psychiatrist slash warden. And he's trying to stop him from finishing writing this story on the wall. And that does make me wonder how much of this is a vision from the prophets and how much of it is a vision from the power raids? Is it the prophets I, well, encouraging I him think, to fight? I think um, this one's very much the prophets. But I think when we go... I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of that episode in season it's, seven. It's uh, Image in the Sand, is it, or something like yeah, that? Yeah. It's the but first I think two that episodes. One you've got, I think that one you've got the prophets and the power raids fighting together. mm because the wormholes shut and all that, and they're literally fighting for who's... Yeah. But it... you see, in this one, I, th I think it's slightly different. It's almost like Cisco taught the uh, prophets. Like, you know, you've got to imagine there's loads of people over centuries who've gone through that wormhole, like perhaps longer, millennia, we'll say, have gone through that wormhole, and they've never been able to get through to the prophets what this is all about. They've never really understood it until Cisco just finds a way of getting through to them. I think this is them putting it back to him. It's like, look, you taught us what it is to be human, what it is to face these struggles. 
Mm. I, we're going to remind you, like, you know, like, this is tough. What you're fighting for is tough, but it's worth it because the yeah. alternative... Well, I think that's, like, I you know, think that's you, what ties You find racism in the past and find in the present for kind of that hope. I think well, that, I think that sort of ties into the beginning where he's... He's contemplating leaving Starfleet mm. and walking away from all this fight. Yeah. So I think he's been put in this situation to show things are worth fighting for. But you could also argue yeah. that if you look at where Benny ends up, like, yeah, he comes to this realisation of you can't beat an idea, but his story's been pulled, it's been taken away from him, and we learn that they take him away to an asylum. So... I, I'm not saying it is, but I could see a reading of this that this is the Par Wraiths trying to break his spirit rather than... I, but the thing is, they don't break him. That's the point. It's mm. like you, it doesn't matter what you do to me. You will never take this idea from me because as long as it's in my head, it exists. As long yeah, as I'm I, able I, to talk with breath in my body, you will not stop me saying this. I don't care if you lock me up. I don't care if you take my feelings away. I will keep talking. I will keep yeah. this alive. Yeah. No, um, I think it's part, half profit, half power rape. I think. I think we're seeing it's the, I think we're seeing all the spiritual battle between the two sides. Another thing as well, I, just tying into the prophets and the power they show him here. I know it's not Jake; it's Jake's character dies, and later this season, Cisco is in a position where he has to choose to let Jake die in order for the prophets to defeat the power Ultimately, spoiler alert, Jake doesn't die because Kai Wynn bottles it. He gets better again because and it's she, sci-fi and Star Trek. And she stops it. But but again, I wonder, are the prophets here preparing him for that, showing him this vision of his son dying, knowing that a few months down the line he's going to be in that position and he's going to have to yeah. make that decision? I find that really interesting. One last thing I wanted to touch on is... The writers of DS9 actually contemplated having the last ever scene of the series being Benny Russell finishing typing the last episode of Deep Space Nine. And ultimately they decided against it because it would have meant that DS9 and all of the rest of Star Trek was, was fictional within its own fictional world, but... That would have been an interesting oh, even touch. Even the scene of that, even the scene of that, wouldn't that have been fun just to put into the final? It would have been interesting, but uh, I can see why they didn't do it, because look at what the internet does now if you do a tiny, tiny little thing in Star Trek. So can you imagine? Um, but yeah, we'll wrap up then, but that's been a really interesting discussion, guys, and I think yeah. even if we did another three episodes this length we wouldn't be able to unpack all of this episode but um it's been really really interesting talking about it i said last week it was one of those i really enjoyed re-watching this i've watched it several times this last week yeah and i, I thoroughly enjoyed watching it again i mean it hit me like a ton of bricks for what it was but also like just seeing that little wraparound of the dominion war i was like oh yeah, that was so exciting. Like, it really makes me pumped to watch the whole of, like, uh, yeah. well, Deep Space Nine from Series 4, maybe. But, like, uh, it gets me really pumped for that storyline and everything. But just as a standalone episode, it's just, it's Star Trek. Absolutely. And yeah. um, so, if you want to get in touch with us, we're at RetrekPod on Twitter. Email us at RetrekPod at gmail.com or come and join us on Facebook. 
Uh, Dr. Squee, what can people catch up with you doing at the minute? You've had a few exciting things going on. Yeah, this week uh, on our uh, One the Sister podcast in the fleet, we'll say uh, um, Due South by Southeast, where I talk about the show Due South. I have been honoured this week to talk to Paul Gross Yay. from uh, the, the t- titular uh, Benton Fraser, titular, but anyway, Benton Fraser from that show. He was the man, the myth, the mountie in that programme. I spoke to him live on Facebook. It's available on uh, Due South by Southeast, the Facebook group. You can also go to um, our YouTube page for the Dr. Squee Show, and you can find it there where we've got a new YouTube page so we could do with the followers, please. And I'll be posting up all the interviews we've done in the past. And this week on uh, the Dr. Squee Show, Thursday, April 10, uh, on the Bear.Live, I will be featuring that interview as well. So you can listen to it in all its audio glory as well. And um, just how lovely was that? Time? Yeah, and yeah, fantastic work getting hold of him as well. Right. Your next challenge is Avery Brooks, then. If you can get the star of, of Due South, <laughs> you can get the star of Deep Space Nine. My, my also offer, just sorry, sorry, one more thing I have. If you guys get the chance, anyone watching this, there's an episode of The Captains, which was the show which, um, uh, which Shatner did, oh, where he God. met all the captains from Star Trek up to that point. The episode of him and Cisco, you talked about getting the same wavelength. Only those two men are crazy enough to speak each other's language and totally get it. I mean, it was like so beautiful. I had no idea what the fuck no. they were talking about, but they both got it. They both understood <laughs> they each other. And yeah. it was just, it was, it's spellbinding torch though. Please check it, it out. Is, it's, it's exceptional. But um, yeah. No so, one else lives on that planet but those two men. No, indeed. <laughs> anyway, so thank you for trekking with us this time and we will see you next time on the retrek. Thank you. Bye bye. Well, prosper.